uh, that you gave your all for us. You carried the cross. You bore the sin. You bore the shame. You bore the burden. You paid the debt. <laughs> all we did was contribute to your death. You bore it. You paid it. Faithful to your promise. Risen on the third day. And risen again, we will see you when we are all together with each other and with you in eternity. Father God, give us soft hearts, open hearts, ears, minds to hear the word that you've given to Pastor Joe today. May it pierce our hearts in the name of your son. Amen. You may be seated. So this, um, this series on the life of Joseph has been uh, quite, quite an experience for me to preach. We have this week and then next week are the last two in this series. And it's only taken us 26 weeks. It'll only take us 27, 27 weeks. But um, I hope that it's been a blessing to you to see this story of this, of this man, Joseph, and his family. And frankly, how very much like them we are in many respects. Um, today is number 26 in the series of the life of Joseph surviving Egypt. For those of you that are new to this, what we've been talking about is the story of Joseph in Egypt really is a metaphor for the world. How do we survive in the world trying to be children of the promise, children of God, people who have received forgiveness and mercy and redemption in a world, frankly, that has nothing to do with it? And so I, I've titled this one Monuments in Egypt. So a couple of months ago, I was in Washington, D.C. for a day. And this whole town of Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, the whole town is a collection of symbols reminding us of important moments, events, and people in American history. It's a collection of impressive buildings made of marble and monuments made of stone, designed to be reminders, connected to our past, reminders so that we won't forget the price some paid for this country's life. Some of these monuments are stirring, some are very impressive, some of them are inspiring, and some are just flat-out puzzling, confusing, and forgettable. Some of them are military monuments, some of them are ethnic in nature, some of them are political, overtly, some of them are religious, some of them are regional, reminding us about certain parts of the country. There are all kinds of things built in Washington, D.C. to make us remember we have spent billions over the course of our nation's history protecting, maintaining, and treasuring all these monuments because there are those who believe it is critical to remember important things about America's past, both good and bad. People before us wanted to assure generations after them understood these important monuments and the events and people and places that they represent. And the reason? Here's why. Because time tends to make people forget even the most important things we think are unforgettable. It takes intentional effort to remember, especially things Egypt has no interest in helping us remember. And there are two main areas that we're going to look at today that we must always remember if we are going to survive in Egypt. Things we must build monuments to in our life, and that is God's promises, and that is God's forgiveness. We must constantly remember both. 
So with that in mind, what we do at Grace Life, if we look at each passage of Scripture from three applications, the history, what about man, what went on with him, what did he do? Then the spiritual, what about God, what's he doing, and how did he do it? And then we look at the, the personal, devotional. What about me? What am I supposed to do? What are we supposed to do about it? So let's look at the history of this passage. I'm going to break down. It's a big chunk of Scripture. It's almost two chapters, but we're not going to read every bit of it. I'm just going to kind of boil it down for you. I want to talk about remembering what's important. So I want to talk about Jacob's monument. In Genesis 49, verses 29 to 33, he gives his last instructions. He says, listen, when I'm, when I'm gone, I want you to take me back to Canaan. Now, this wasn't a small task, by the way, because the trip itself probably took 30 days. The preparation alone would take months. I, wanna, I don't want to be buried here in Egypt, even though we've had a lot of success here and my family's done well here and we've gotten favor with Pharaoh and Joseph runs the place. I don't want to be buried here. I want to be buried in Canaan. And in chapter 50, verses 1 through, one through 3, we talk about all the preparations that Jacob wants to have happen. So the first thing is they make him into a mummy. I mean, it's Egypt after all, right? And they're really good at that. And the reason is, is because it's going to take probably 70, 80 days to get him where he wants to be. Egypt mourns, the scripture says, Egypt itself, the nation of Egypt, not a, necessarily a God-following nation before Joseph got there. They mourn the death of Jacob for 70 days as all the nation. Think about that. This once pagan nation mourns the death of Jacob. Remember back when we talked about when Pharaoh said, Jacob, please give me your blessing? There is, there is this submission, this recognition of the God of Jacob being the God of Egypt for this moment in time anyway. And it's a pretty fascinating thing. And so the whole country is preparing for this moment to take Jacob back to Canaan. And then chapter 50, verses 4 through 14, about the procession that goes to Canaan. As Jacob is transported to Canaan with Pharaoh's blessing, not only does all of Jacob's family go, all of his sons and all of their grandkids and their kids and their wives <coughs> and their poodles and their ducks and everything else, everything all together gets in this big caravan. It's not only Jacob's family, but all the important people in Egypt go. All the elders, including Pharaoh and his family, all their families, and the scripture said it was a great company. I would imagine it's probably a thousand, maybe two thousand, because then you got all their servants, you got all their camels, you got everything and everybody going to Canaan, to the place where Jacob said, Take me there, bury me there. And the inhabitants of Canaan, who are still there, they see this massive funeral procession from Egypt. By the way, Egypt is the nation who has been their salvation food wise because of Joseph's leadership all through this famine they just come through. And they see this place and they say to themselves, this is surely very grievous mourning by the Egyptians. You notice that. They don't say it's a tremendous mourning by the Jews. It's the whole nation. This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was called a field of Egypt. It's fascinating, isn't it? This greatest nation on earth mourning the death of Jacob. The only thing I can think of that it's like it is when I was in uh, earlier this su summer when we had the privilege of uh, being in London for a little bit of time, we went and saw the, the, the Churchill War Museum. 
And in there, there's one section that all they do is run on a loop, his funeral, the, na- the national day of mourning when Churchill was, was gone. And this whole country, the nation of the, you know, the United Kingdom is mourning Churchill. And it'd be kind of like that, except it wasn't an Egyptian they were mourning. So why was it so important to Jacob to be buried in Canaan? Despite his successes in Egypt with his family, Jacob wants to make sure, get this, Jacob wants to make sure his sons never forget the promises of God for Egyptian comfort. Jacob wants a memorable connection to Canaan for his family as a reminder of God's promises. I love what John Calvin says about this. He says, Jacob did not wish to be carried to the land of Canaan as if he would be nearer to heaven for being buried there. But that, being dead, he might claim possession of a land which he had held during his life because it was profitable that the memory of the promise should be renewed by this symbol among his surviving sons in order that they might aspire to it. Jacob saw it was very important that his sons, while Egypt was going great, don't forsake the promises of God for the success of Egypt. Pretty amazing picture. And for thousands of years after, it served as a tremendous reminder to the people of Israel. The next thing I want to see historically is Joseph's forgiveness. This is fascinating. So we see the remembrance on a big corporate level, right? A whole nation and certainly all the family of Jacob. But then it gets a little bit more personal. In Genesis 50, verses 15 to 20, when I'm going to read this passage, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us now and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Now we don't know if Jacob gave this command. It could be lying. We don't know. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph, sw- Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What are they afraid of? Well, here's what they're afraid of. They're afraid Joseph has forgotten forgiveness. The brothers still had a hard time grasping the fact that they could be forgiven by their brother, a man that they betrayed to the greatest degree. They're concerned he will just forget all of it. I mean, come on, guys. It is not natural. It is very hard to accept forgiveness when we know we don't deserve it. And they use three Hebrew words for iniquity. They say, forgive us of our transgressions, forgive us of our sin, and forgive us of our evil. And then you know what else they do? They humbly identify with the God of Jacob, saying, we are sinners, please forgive us, and we are servants of our God. the the God of our father, Jacob. They want to identify spiritually with Joseph. And Joseph is emotional, probably because his brothers still don't trust his forgiveness. But he assures them again in humility, saying, am I in the place of God? Joseph is reminding them that their God is the one who forgives. It's not on him. 
that their promise of mercy rests. And we see two things historically in this passage that we're looking at today. We see a big corporate promise that is being reminded by Jacob being taken back to Canaan. Then we see his personal promise of mercy that the brothers of Joseph are struggling to really believe in. And, and, Jake, and Joseph says, listen, it's not on me. God is the one that forgave you, remember? I said before, what you meant for evil, God meant for good so that he would save all these other people because it brought me to Egypt and I ran the place to make sure all the world had food and all that stuff. Yes, what you did was bad, but God turned it into good and God is the one who forgives you. So let's talk about the spiritual side. What about God and what is he doing in this? I want to talk about remembering promises and mercy. So throughout the history of the nation of Israel, their survival is tied to these two things, God's promises and God's mercy. God's promises and God's mercy. God's promises and God's mercy. Even in their most rebellious times, they saw value and comfort in remembering God's promises and God's mercy. So let's talk about, first of all, God's promises. At the most practical earthly level, remembering God's promises was crucial to Israel's survival because it kept their eyes on the future. It kept them from being obsessed with the now. Even when current circumstances seemed they couldn't be any darker, the promises of God's word kept God's people focused on hope. That's why Jacob wanted to be buried in Canaan. To ensure following generations would never forget these precious promises. And throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, its authors reflect on the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I think one of the best examples is by the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3-4. through Here's what Peter says. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that, with, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in Egypt, that is in the world because of sinful desire. Well, he does a good job explaining it there, doesn't he? Guys, this is why earlier on in the life of, of um, Grace Life, and it wasn't just by random, we picked these series for a reason. We took almost a year and a half to study Psalm 119. David's expression of love and remembrance of God's word. Because God's promises, remembering them, are the foundation of our connection with him. Without this foundation of the promises of God, there would be nothing to live for. No hope for loved ones gone. No motivation for righteousness now. No reason to love God's people because without the promises, there is no reason to have God's people. There is no church family. There is no brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's God's promises. You can see why those would be quite important. But then we also have God's mercy. See, this is what Joseph's brothers needed. They needed comfort and reassurance that their treachery had been forgiven. And God has used throughout history both his word and his people to constantly remind Israel that he would not forget them on the day of judgment. 
And all through the Old Testament, God's people created monuments to remember times that God intervened intimately and personally in their lives with mercy. Even during their most rebellious, wicked moments, God kept the message of redemption alive and well. Yes, they endured consequences because of their sinfulness, often at the hand of pagan dictators of the world. Egypt was not the last Egypt that Israel would endure. But even as prophets in the Old Testament warned of consequences, there was always a reminder of how God would ultimately forgive them. I love this verse in Hosea chapter 14, verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. All throughout the prophets, even though there's hellfire and damnation, there is woven within it this thread of, but in the end, there's mercy, grace, forgiveness, redemption, restoration. See, it's easy to see how critical remembering the love and mercy of God is especially in the face of personal and national failure. I believe, and this, this is important, I believe that this is the nation of Israel's most enduring legacy. Not the temple, not Judaism. This is their most enduring legacy, their ability to build remembrances of God's word and God's mercy. These figurative and literal monuments still benefit us today in great ways. And that, frankly, is what this series of Surviving in Egypt has been all about. The memories of what God did in the life of Joseph and Jacob and his brothers and the whole nation and, frankly, the whole civilized world. All these things remind us what God did then and exactly what he can do now for us as we seek to survive. With that in mind, I want to take us to the personal side. What about us? What are we supposed to do? I want to talk about building monuments. So this was my social media campaign this week, kind of giving you a little heads up. Egypt has no interest in reminding us we have been forgiven. And spiritually, Egypt has a way of making us forget crucial things about our connection to God and his promises and his people, doesn't it? Conversely, Egypt is also very good at reminding us just how flawed and sinful we are. Egypt is great at never letting us forget our failures. Egypt wants to put our hope in shiny successes defined by its terms. And conversely, wants to remind us when we fail personally and spiritually so that we drift away from the hope of his promises of eternal life and forgiveness and redemption. And here's what happens, ready? When we start to forget his promises and mercy, here's a telltale sign. You start drifting away first from God's people. I can always tell when somebody's getting their eyes off the promises of God because they get their eyes off of God's people. And then once you start to drift slowly away from connecting with God's people on a regular basis, sooner or later, your eyes and mind and heart are going to start turning away from God's hope, God's promises. The fact is, survival in Egypt depends upon letting go and embracing God's eternal purposes. But if we don't, 
suddenly we start asking questions like, when I die, will I really be forgiven? Is heaven even real? Is this God thing a scam? Is it just a waste of time? But here's what's great. Something happened and something changed when Jesus came. And these physical monuments that Israel was so good at building were no longer the way that we remember. Scripture says he wrote his promises on our hearts, on tablets of flesh. And the Spirit of God transformed his word and his people into the very monuments that we need to survive Egypt. But that is why Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Wouldn't we be well served to remember this? And the foundation of this that makes this possible, we find in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 and 12. For this is the covenant that I will make. Covenant is promise. For this is the promise that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will, shall be my people. For I will be merciful toward them. You see what's going on in this verse? He's combining covenant and mercy. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Why can he do that? Because he's going to take his law, he's going to take his word, he's going to take his promises, he's going to put it in our mind, in our hearts, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when he does that, he will not remember our sins. So we build these monuments that we need to survive in Egypt in two ways. I mean, sometimes we still build big stone monuments, but, you know, that's not really where the power of remembering is for God's people. First thing we do is we build corporate monuments. <clears throat> not corporate as in business. Corporate as in together. We learned this from Jacob's big funeral, by the way. This is a great example. Psalm 98.3. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. That means everyone. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. These are the benefits of remembering together. In church, we do several things. We have the Lord's table. Do this in remembrance of me. We have Christmas and Easter at the corporate level to remind us of the promises. We have memorial services. We have baptisms. Reminders of our corporate identity together as children of the promise. The songs we sing are full of memories of God's promises and God's mercy. That's why church worshiping together is so crucial. If you forsake his people, you will begin, I promise you, to forget his mercy. Hebrews 10.25, Paul says, Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the promise coming, the day approaching near. So those are the corporate monuments that we must build. We must build them together with how we worship, how we gather, in our songs, in our liturgy, in our sacraments. Those are important. But then we also have to build intimate monuments. We learn this from the example of Joseph's brothers who are insecure and need reminding of their forgiveness. We must remember the intimate, personal remembrances 
of his promise and mercy as well. This can take place in small groups. Like the one that's going to be meeting right after church. There's two actually. One meeting at Chili's. Where is it again? Applebee's. That's what I said. Applebee's. <laughs> one upstairs. It can take in small groups. These intimate monuments can take place in one-on-one relationships when we have to forgive each other or encourage one another. I love this verse in Psalm 136, 23 and 24. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for his steadfast love endures forever and rescued us from our foes for his steadfast love endures forever. But you know what else these intimate monuments must be? They must be things that take place privately, personally, when we humble ourselves before God in confession and repentance. Because ultimately, church, listen to me carefully. Our survival in Egypt is contingent upon us remembering that God will remember. The only way we're going to survive Egypt is if we remember that God is not going to forget that he gave us forgiveness and mercy through his promises. Psalm 25, verse 6 and 7. A lot of scripture this morning. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth. See, this is a very personal psalm. Remember not the sins of my past, my youth, or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. That's a very personal, intimate monument. Then I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 143, verse 4. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse or I think about the work of your hands. And I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you as if I were in Egypt. In a thirsty land. Egypt is that thirsty land. This world is Egypt. And we cannot afford to let it cause us to forget the promises of God or the mercy he has given us. We must do whatever we can to live in constant remembrance of both the promises and the mercy. And we must make sure we remember them together and individually. What monuments are we, you, building to remember God's promises and mercy. Church, listen. It is crucial that we build these monuments together. Because the moment that we start to forget his promises and his mercy, we are in severe danger of being devoured by Egypt. Dad, we just ask that you would fill us full of monuments. Your word your people, giving us rich memories of what you have promised, that you said you were going to do, and also what you have done in our lives individually. Help us corporately and in smaller groups and personally build these monuments so that we will never forget the promises of Abraham that you have given to all of us through the work of your son, Jesus Christ. 